Welcome to Hauser Community Church Online. Let's join Pastor as the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and unpacks the Word of God for us. After the message, we'll tell you how to contact us. Great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. We as your people, we desire, Lord, to bring you glory and and bring you honor for you alone are our God. Lord, we come before you this morning and, and we seek forgiveness for our sin. Too often we are, we're more concerned, Lord, about what others will say or, or think than we are about what you say and think. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for seeking to exalt ourselves above you by putting our own desires before your desires by not organizing our time so that we spend time in your word or time in prayer, for not loving one another as you have called us to so that the world can see that we are your disciples. In our confession of sin, Lord, though, we, we know that you tell us in Ephesians, in love, you predestined us for adoption to yourself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of your will, to the praise of your glorious grace, with which you have blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. We thank you for Christ. I thank you that we have boldness to come before you and and confess sin knowing that we are forgiven and that you're cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Now in your power and by your spirit, Lord, we ask that you would create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. We ask that you would move us to love and obedience and faith and godliness and and perseverance in the faith. Lord, give us wisdom to understand and to know your word and the boldness to speak the gospel to those around us and and live the gospel and pray the gospel and teach all that you have commanded us. We ask, Lord, that the seeds of your word that are planted in our hearts will increase 20 and 50 and 100 fold. We ask that you would use us in a mighty way for your kingdom, Lord, that you would deepen our fellowship with the believers around us and, and remove the, the petty arguments that we have and the things that tend to create bitter roots and, and that you would create in us a love for one another just as you have loved us. Lord, we ask for your mercy on the sick, that you would bring healing. We pray, Lord, for our president and our vice president and governors and mayors that you would turn their eyes to you We ask that you would show them your grace and that they would come to know Jesus as Savior. As we turn to your word now, Lord, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate your word, open our ears and our minds so that we can hear, understand, and apply your word. May you be glorified this morning. May you give me the boldness and the mind to preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Kiddos, you are released. The rest of you turn to 
Acts, Luke part 2, Acts 5, 12 through 42. Well, good morning, church. Recently in Canada, a bill was passed called C4, if you want to look it up. It effectively bans the practice known as conversion therapy. Now, they define conversion therapy this way. It's a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change the person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress a person's non-cisgender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. Why in the world would I bring that up? This text has nothing to do with that. But it's because this bill... It's passed just north of us recently. It's passed everything, so it's actually law of the land. Seeks to label what the Bible teaches about humanity and sexuality as, as according to the Bill's preamble, myths and stereotypes. And it would be easy for us to look at this and say, what's the world coming to? What is going on? And and it would be easy for us to become nervous and say, it seems like the church is being quieted. It seems like it's being hushed. It seems like it's being watered down. But we see in 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 the text, we have no reason to sit on the edge of our seats and wonder if God's plan is going to go forth. Now, our text, like I said today, has absolutely nothing about human sexuality in it. Nothing at all. But it does reveal the persecution of the truth. We know that from the very beginning of time, Satan has been attempting to overthrow God's plan. He's been attempting to thwart it. He's been attempting to turn people's eyes away from it. But day by day, year after year, century after century... The plan of God moves forward successfully. And because of that, and because we know the history, and because we know the Lord of the history, we as Christians, we can proclaim that the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can proclaim it in faith, knowing that nothing can overthrow God's plan of redemption. So this morning, we're going to look at how the gospel message is authenticated We're going to see how the gospel message cannot be silenced or overthrown, and we get to see the joy of persecution and suffering, right? I'm glad we got a couple of amens out there. So the gospel message is authenticated. Let's look at verse 12. That says 17, I know. It's supposed to say 12. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. So first we see that God authenticates the gospel through, and the gospel's leader, the leadership of the apostles through signs and wonders. 
This is just like Moses early on. We see in Deuteronomy 34, and there, was not, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. This is after Moses had passed, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him are all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all the land. And for all the mighty powers and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So the Lord, through the signs and wonders that Moses did, we know through the plagues in front of Pharaoh, in front of his magicians, in front of all of Egypt, was to establish Moses' leadership to Pharaoh and to the people of God in Israel. We also see this in the Old Testament prophets, some of them like Elijah. We know the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 18. He confronts the prophets of Baal. He does these signs and wonders. He calls down fire from heaven and it burns up the altar. Elisha takes over for Elijah and God establishes his leadership through signs and wonders. We see this in Jesus. Matthew 21, 15 tells us when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. The signs and wonders were establishing Jesus as the Christ, as the anointed one, as the Messiah. Hosanna, the the promised son of David that was coming for them. And finally, we see this in the apostles here in Acts. And later on, we'll see Paul's apostleship. Uh, It is authenticated as he does wonders like have never been seen before. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. God was saying, this is my apostle. And because the Lord authenticated the leadership of these apostles through signs and wonders, we see that the people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because they recognized that God is using them to bring his word, just like he has always been doing through Moses and through the the prophets. So God also, he authenticates the leaders, but he authenticates the message of the gospel through signs and wonders. Just about every time in the Bible that we see signs and wonders happening, we see a new message or a updated message coming forth. Moses, he was delivering Israel out of slavery to the promised land. And he was giving them Torah, the Old Testament law. This was new to them. Jesus was revealing himself as the Messiah The apostles were bearing witness to the resurrection, and the signs were to reveal the breaking in of the kingdom of God, little by little, to the lost and dying world around them, and to call the people of God to repentance. Every time, turn to the Lord, turn back to the Lord, turn back to the Lord, get away from sin. That was a brief word of caution I want to sound about signs and wonders. First, they cannot replace the salvation message. We must be born again, Jesus said. Jesus answered Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? But Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say this to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Again, in John 4, 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. They were looking to the signs and wonders. They wanted to see the signs and wonders, but they didn't want to hear the message that Jesus was bringing. And Paul picks that up later. He says, the Jews demand a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Signs and wonders cannot replace the salvation message. And secondly, signs and wonders alone are not evidence of a person being from God. Even evil spirits are able to perform signs and wonders. We see in Matthew 24, 24, Jesus warns, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. In Revelation, it, it, being the beast, performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it receives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that it's wounded <clears throat> excuse me, by the sword and yet lived. Again, one more in Revelation. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. <coughs> Excuse me. We must test everything by the word and in prayer through the spirit. Just because of signs and wonders, it doesn't mean this person is from God. Evil can mimic that. The third way that God authenticates the gospel message is through his community of believers. Look at verse 13 through 16. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women, so that even they carried even out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by and at least his shadow might fall upon some of them the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed those who didn't join the apostles at this time probably stayed back because of the previous, what was going on with Ananias and Sapphira. They saw that um, 
The gospel was authenticated as a holy God calling a people to be holy. So they didn't really want to be part of that right away. They were saying, uh, that's pretty intense. But um, they still held the believers in high esteem. They still saw them as um, desirable, as uh, the gospel of Jesus was authenticated and how God's goodness was shown through the people of God. We saw this in Acts 2. The people around them, they found favor with everyone. We see this in Acts 4. I believe that the ones that are, are carrying out the sick and those who are possessed by unclean spirits are the believers. They're bringing them out. They're saying, come and see. Uh, come and hear the message. And as their ministry spreads around Jerusalem and, and even outside of Jerusalem, people from all around hear the gospel and they're healed. <coughs> Ooh, don't do it like that. Thirdly, God or God also authenticates the gospel by adding to his community. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. He says more than ever multitudes of people are being added and he calls them multitudes and that should bring in our minds that should bring us back to the promise of Abraham that God says I'm going to add to your people I'm going to make it as many as the stars in the sky you are going to be a multitude a great multitude and we see that God is fulfilling that promise through his church and in saying in men and women Luke is revealing that there's no barrier in coming to Jesus Christ he says, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male or female, neither slave or free. And this authenticates the gospel message because God promised all throughout Scripture that this is what he was going to do. And now he is and was fulfilling that promise through his church. And the message of Jesus Christ is authenticated as it's changing hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He's creating one body across all barriers, gender barriers, social barriers, cultural barriers, geographical barriers from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And since God has authenticated his gospel message by these signs and wonders to the apostles, then, then we can proclaim the gospel in faith and knowing that nothing can overthrow it. We know that this is true but we have to know what that message is, church. I have to know that the story of the Bible, I have to know what the gospel actually is. What is the good news? What's the bad news? Why do I need good news? I need to know the history of humanity. I have to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But not only do I need to know it, I need to actually speak it. I need to tell people the gospel. Paul says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. They need to actually hear the word of Christ. It can't, we can't just be good people and expect that someone is going to catch the gospel because we smile at them at the, at the grocery store. We have to tell people, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. And we have to live it. Paul says, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, that's a participation, in a manner worthy of the calling from which you have been called. You have to live out your calling. 
You have to look like Jesus. You have to live in community and have people call you out and you have to disciple and be discipled. Your life should be a reflection of the gospel message. It should be a display of mercy, an array of love, a presentation of grace. People should look at you and say, man, there's something different about them. And knowing that God will fulfill his plan, we have no reason as we share the gospel to be frustrated or irate. We can bear with others patiently. We can share the gospel over long periods of time in many conversations, through many displays of love, through much forgiveness, and through much prayer. And as God establishes the message, and as he authenticates the message, it becomes unstoppable. Not that our participation makes it, or our lack of participation makes it stoppable, but you just, we see it happening. And we see that the gospel message, it can't be silenced. Look at verse 17. The high priest rose up and all who were with him That is the party of the Sadducees and filled with jealousy. We'll stop there. They were filled with jealousy. They saw what was going on. And they weren't reacting uh, to the apostles because of heresy or because they wanted to protect the people or maintain God's honor. We see that exposed in their jealousy. They're filled with jealousy. They were jealous of the multitudes turning to this message of Jesus Christ They were jealous of the multitudes following the apostles and not listening to them anymore. And we'll see later in Acts 7-9 that the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. So that's the other brothers, the patriarchs. And they sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. The reason they sold him into Egypt is because they were jealous of Joseph. But the text tells us, but God was with him. In fact, God used Joseph to save Israelites, or the Israelite people and to increase them. It says at the end of, of Genesis, there were 70 people as they came into Egypt. And when they left, they were over a million people. He saved millions of people. And surely, jealous is it's an ugly thing, but it's not going to rob the gospel from going forth. Joseph later says, as for you, you men evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Another example of jealousy is in Acts 17.5, the Jews again, they were jealous this time of Paul, and they were taking some wicked men of the rabble, and they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, and they were seeking to bring the apostles out to the crowd, and, and that drives Paul out of, um, out of this place, out of Thessalonica, and it pushes him into Berea, where they preach the gospel, and many believed. Then the Athens, and the Areopagus, and preaching the gospel and proclaiming the gospel to many and all the jealousy of others does. It doesn't, it doesn't harden or it doesn't change the gospel. It doesn't stop the gospel. It hardens them towards the gospel and just pushes it out to other areas. So here's my concern though. 
that the Christian church is becoming jealous of the world around us. We think that we're losing multitudes of people to the world, so we lash out like the religious leaders do in this text. Not in jealousy of God's glory, but for our fame and glory. And our Christians, other Christians are jealous of other churches around them. And all this is doing in these instances is making us more like the Pharisees and the Sadducees than the apostles. So jealousy cannot rob the gospel message and prisons cannot contain the gospel message. Look at the text, verse 18. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the synod of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought out. But the officer came and did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing in the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. You see, the religious leaders, they go and they imprison the apostles, and this is more accurately translated, they prison them publicly. They didn't prison them in a public prison, but publicly imprison them so that it was to strike the fear into the apostles' hearts and to the people that were following them. They wanted to create a fearful uh, moment so that these people would disperse. We see this very thing happening in other countries around us. We see that it's the possibility of it happening here is it seems like it's increasing more and more in parts of our own country. But we can rest in the fact that the prison walls cannot contain the gospel. We see that what happens is the angel comes and the angel releases them from prison, but he doesn't free them from prison so that they are no longer in prison. He frees them from prison so that they will go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The message is far too important. Prison was meant to bring death to this movement, but the apostles were to bear witness to the words of life, the the angel says. This is the life that Peter says, Jesus uh, tells of Jesus, he's the author of this life. The life that John says, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. This life that Jesus tells us, he says, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, he will not die, yet he, or though he die, he will live. Again, the life was made manifest, made visible, And we've seen it, John writes, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in the Son. This message is far too important. 
The angel doesn't want to just free them. He says, you've got to go tell people of this life. You've got to go tell them of Jesus. Anything outside of Jesus Christ is death and damnation. But life is in Jesus Christ. I'm releasing you not so that you are more comfortable. I'm releasing you so that you can tell people that. And if we truly believe this, persecution and prison, it shouldn't shake us. And, and, and I think that's such a foreign idea for us right now because prison is such a... It's, it's not even something that we worry about really right now. But we should have it in our mind that this message is so important. Nothing should stop us from telling it. But we have to be obedient. Verse 21, they, when they heard this, they went into the temple and they began to teach. Verse 25 Someone says, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. Verse 26, the captain and the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They, they were obedient. Even the captain of the guard was like, they're right outside. They didn't run. They're just back to what they were doing. They're not hiding. They're out in the open. Now, if we're persecuted and we kick and scream and whine about our rights and how, we're, how are we truly showing the word or the world that we're willing to suffer for Christ? Willing to lose everything we owe? Willing to lose our lives even? You see, our failure to throw a fit, like they, they go and get them, not by force, they, they could have, the apostles could have thrown a fit right there. And they would have probably been taken care of by the crowds. But they didn't. They go. They say, fine, we'll listen. Our failure to throw a fit in persecution disarms the persecutor. You see, the guards, they didn't take them by force because of the crowds. They were worried about the crowds. They were loved by the believers in the crowds. And they were loved by the non-believers in the crowds. And I wonder, when I read this, can the world say this about the church today? If we were being taken into uh, captivity or, or into prison, would the world say, what's going on? Would they want to fight for the church or would they say, you can have them. We're tired of them too. The persecution of the Christian church should put on full display, on full display faith in Christ Jesus and not ourselves not our finances, not our rights. The world should look to us and they should see that our being persecuted for our beliefs and not our behavior. Look at the text, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest, they, he questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, your intended, your intended, your intent, sorry, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalt him, exalted him at his right hand as leader or prince 
and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. Look at verse 40. Again, when they called the apostles, they beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So threats also should not silence our message. Again, we have seen over the last couple of weeks, we have to fear God more than man. If we're threatened because we're being jerks, we probably deserve it. Uh, If threats come that hinder our obedience to God and, and the spreading of the gospel, then we have to obey God over man. And listen, church, if we're going to say we're obeying God over man, we better find ourselves spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. I think if we're honest, the gospel is hindered more by the failure of the church to be obedient to the Great Commission than the world persecuting us, at least in America. But threats must not silence the gospel, or more specifically, threats should not water down our gospel. They say, you intend to make it that we killed this man, hanging him on a tree. And they say, you did. (laughs) You did kill him. So we have to continue to speak of sin and how it kills, killed Jesus. We have to continue to speak of the resurrection of Jesus. If it's not popular, it doesn't matter. We must continue to speak of the rule of Jesus as the leader and the savior and that he alone brings salvation. There's no other way. And we must not waver because the gospel is an offensive message. So the gospel message can't be, it has been authenticated by God. It can't be silenced. It can't be overthrown it's, just, it's not just another movement, Gamamil, he's a teacher of the law, he warns them, he says, if it's a movement, it'll be overthrown. Like this first movement of Theodos, he rose up, he claimed to be somebody, verse 36, and a number of men, about 400, they joined him, and then he was killed and everybody dispersed. And then after him, Judas, a Galilean, rose up. In the days of the census and drew away some of the people, he too perished and all who followed him were scattered. If this, he's saying, if it's another movement, it will fall flat. We've seen movements in our days and in the past, a recent history, Jim Jones, Marshall Applegate at Heaven's Gate, David Koresh, all claiming to be the way and all of them falling flat. But the gospel is the indestructible plan of God. Gamaliel says, but if this is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. This is Jewish theology. That's all Gamaliel is doing is as a Pharisee who's instructed, he's the one that instructed the apostle Paul that we'll see soon in Acts. He was only proclaiming as Jews have always believed the sovereignty of God. If this is of God, it's going, you can't do anything about it. 
We look at just Proverbs 16. The plans of the heart belong to man. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. 16, 3 or 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. He's sovereign. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his step. The lot is cast in the lap, but the, every decision comes from the Lord. They believed in the sovereignty of God. That's what he was saying. And this warning is rooted in the Jewish belief that God is in control. His plans cannot be frustrated. Man is not going to change what God has already determined to do. The problem is the religious leaders didn't realize that their plans were the ones set to fail, not the apostles. And we know the gospel of, is God's plan of redemption. It's not just found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's, that's the gospels, the good news. But it's from Genesis to Revelation. Nothing can thwart the plan of God. He is determined to do it and he has been doing it and will complete it. We see in Isaiah 14, 24, the Lord of hosts is sworn, as I have planned, so it will be. As I have purposed, so it will stand. We don't need to wring our hands or wonder or worry our minds. We just need to develop a deeper knowledge and faith in God's plan. And it's in this understanding that we find the joy and suffering for the gospel message. Look at verse 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The joy and suffering for the gospel message. We find Joy, we should find joy in being counted worthy to suffer for such a great message. Joy because we get to participate, not be outsiders, not look from the outside, but we get to participate in the grand plan of redemption. When I was in the military, uh, even through basic training, even in Iraq, I, there was this joy of being part of something bigger, something I uh, believed in. And there's, we, church, are, are part of something so much more significant, eternally bigger than that. Something amazing, something life-changing for every single person that comes in contact with the good news of Jesus Christ. And we can suffer in this knowledge, we can suffer in this life knowing that we're being perfected and we will be glorified. And we have joy because we're being given the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those, Jesus says, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we have joy because we join the ranks of Jesus and the prophets and suffering. Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Sorry. I didn't put the rest of that verse in there. As the prophets have suffered as Jesus has suffered. We're given the possibility and the ability through the Holy Spirit to participate in a long line of faithful people laying down their lives for the good news of Jesus Christ. And we'll find joy in suffering for, look at the text. This is 
something I want to point out to you. Verse 41, when they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's an interesting phrase, the name. We don't use it very often. I don't know that we ever use it really uh, outside of this text in the Christian um, realm. But the Jewish community would know that very well. They know that this is Hashem, the name. They would use it by, it's used by many Jews to replace Yahweh so they don't accidentally say the holy name of God. They would either say Hashem or they would say Adonai, but they're not going to say Yahweh because that's God's holy name. But Luke here is making a very bold and clear statement that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. That we get to suffer for the name. And not only is he equating Jesus with Yahweh, he's revealing the presence of God with the apostles. So this name we've seen in in passages like Psalm 20 verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob protect you. In verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of of the Lord our God. Deuteronomy also speaks of, of the name as God's presence in Deuteronomy 12, 5, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes and he will put his name and make his habitation there. There shall you go. Verse 11, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Why am I going on about the name? Because he's showing that this is where God's presence dwells. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we as believers are the dwelling place of God. His presence and his spirit are within us. So in suffering for the name of Jesus, we're being reminded of his very presence with us in that suffering. We're counted worthy to suffer for the name. And I'm not suffering alone. I'm suffering in community. I'm suffering with Christ himself. And your joy comes from understanding that you're not suffering from some figure that's no longer alive or some radical in the first century, but you're suffering for God Almighty, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And there's great joy in continuing on in obedience. Every day in the temple, from house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. True joy comes from knowing who you are in Christ, chosen and called to represent the king. And knowing that you, knowing who you are will drive you to participate in the kingdom of God. It should drive you to participate in the kingdom of God. The more this truth seeps into your soul, the more you desire to tell people around you. The more the truth penetrates your mind, the more you desire to teach people around you. And the more the truth changes your heart, the more you desire to preach Christ to people around you. And you say, I don't know how. Commit yourself to regularly 
being here. Commit yourself to being in a small group. Commit yourself to being discipled and making disciples. If you're here this morning and you don't know this life that we've been speaking about, come this morning and let me tell you of the author of life, life, Jesus Christ. The one who takes away the sins of the world, who loved you so much that he put on flesh and died for you so that you could be a son and daughter of the king. Believers, we have assurance that's more certain than the morning. We have a confidence that is more sure than your next breath is. God's plan will succeed. His kingdom will prevail and we get to participate in being part of that wonderful story. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we praise you. You are the author of life. Jesus, you are the king, our leader, our savior. And I pray, Lord, that even though persecution may come, persecution, if you say, if we are living for you, persecution and suffering will come. So I pray, Lord, that when it does, we remember that your plan cannot be overthrown. It cannot be changed. Your gospel will go forward. You will build your church as you've promised. Lord, I pray that you would give us as a church boldness. We desire to tell people of Jesus and we're so weak in the flesh. We get so worried about what others will say or what is going to happen to us physically. And, and I pray, God, that you would just remove those things in those moments that you present us to share your word and that you would give us boldness, you'd give us the words, and that you would help us to participate with you in growing your church. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us at Hauser Community Church Online. Check back next week for the next unpacking of the Word of God. Please feel free to contact us with any questions you might have about the message or for pastor at area code 541-756-2591 or email us at pray at hauserchurch.org. Again, that's P-R-A-Y at H-A-U-S-E-R-C-H-U-R-C-H dot O-R-G. Our address is 69411 Wildwood Road, North Bend, Oregon, 97459. Remember, if you're seeking the truth, it will set you free. And that truth is Jesus Christ.